0: Amen. Praise the Lord, brothers and sisters. Oh, it's so good to be together again. And, uh, you know, it was one year ago, one year ago, we had our conference uh, and we were at the Omni Hotel. And then just a few days later, the pandemic began to sweep across the country and and, uh, everything had to shut down. And so we are here at the second, uh, you could say the second virtual college conference. And hopefully it's the last one. Hopefully, it's the last one. (laughs) Praise the Lord. And as the brothers have mentioned, uh, we have uh, been going through John. We've been going through very slowly, actually. The first conference a year ago on John, we only covered three and a half chapters. And then last fall, we also covered three and a half chapters. That brought us up to chapter 7. And now we're going to start tonight in chapter 8. And this chapter... Is titled if you have if you have the outline you can see the title. It's the need of those under the bondage of sin, life's setting free. Praise the Lord. Now, just as a tiny recap, uh, John covers nine cases, nine cases, uh, and the Holy Spirit has uh, kind of brought these cases together to prove that Jesus Christ is God who came as life to meet man's every need, every need. So this is marvelous. Now, the first six cases can be grouped together on the positive side. And the first case was there in John chapter 3. We saw that life, who is Christ, he came to uh, regenerate. That was the case of Nicodemus, right? He needed another life. He was a very uh, high person. Uh, very uh, upright, moral and so forth. well he needed another life and uh, then the very next chapter chapter four we see a an exact opposite case of an immoral woman and guess what her need was exactly the same. she needed Christ as life to satisfy her. you know she was uh, she was not satisfied. She had had so many husbands, and the one she was living with was not her husband. She needed satisfaction, and Christ came and satisfied her. And then also in chapter 4, there was a little boy who was dying. And so we see that Christ came as life to heal. Then in chapter 5, you have the, the impotent man at the pool of Bethesda. And he had been laying there for 38 years, totally unable to do anything. And, uh, and the Lord simply came and he spoke a life-giving word to him. He said, do you want to get well? And uh, he said, rise, take up your mat and walk. And so just through his speaking, a life-giving word, that man was made alive. And uh, he was, uh, oh, he rose up from his, from his mat after 38 years. Praise the Lord. That was life's enlivening. Then in chapter 6, we saw life's feeding. Christ came as the bread of life to feed us, to feed every man. In chapter 7, which was the very last chapter that we covered last time, you see life's quenching of man's thirst. Man is just thirsty, thirsty. This world just makes us thirsty. And Jesus, he stood up on the last day of the great feast, The Jews had been feasting and drinking and drinking and eating for seven days. And at the end of that feast, he stood up and he cried out and he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Oh, And and he made himself available as the the thirst quenching, life-giving spirit. Praise the Lord. Now we come to chapter eight and we begin a little cluster of three negative cases. And these cases have to do with sin, with blindness, and with death. And so here with chapter 8, we have the matter of sin and the need of those under the bondage of sin. We need to be set free from the bondage of sin. And this chapter, I might mention that John chapter 8 is like no other chapter in the Bible. This chapter, it exposes sin so thoroughly and completely. Uh, and that's what we're going to see tonight. Tomorrow morning, we'll see the matter of how the Lord deals with blindness. And then tomorrow night, how he deals with death, death itself. But then we don't, we don't want to just see that Christ comes as a solution uh, to deal with this matter of sin. But he himself releases us and frees us from the bondage of sin. He doesn't just take sin away, but he frees us from the bondage of sin. So what I want to do here at the beginning, of course, if we were in person, I would ask you to uh, take turns and read through these verses. But uh, since we're virtual, I'm just going to read through these first 11 verses for all of us together, just to kind of set the stage. So starting with verse one, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and early in the morning, he came again into the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught committing adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? But they said this to tempt him. So that they might have reason to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote with his finger on the ground. But then they persisted in questioning him. He stood up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard that, they went out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman stood where she was in the midst. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Well, that's the story. The, uh, the religious Jews, they were, they were really bothered by this man, Jesus. You know, everyone was flocking to him, and he was uh, really causing some trouble regarding their religion, regarding their practices, and, uh, and they really wanted this guy to get out of the way. They wanted him gone. In fact, uh, it, elsewhere in the Gospel of John, it tells us they wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him. So at this point, they really thought they had him. They thought they caught him. But. Uh, they, they thought they had some ground to accuse him. Because, you know, uh, they actually caught somebody committing adultery in the very act. At least they had the woman. I don't know what happened to the guy. You know, <laughs> it takes two to tango. But anyways, uh, they had her. They brought her. And, uh, and according to the law of Moses, she should be stoned. Right? She should be stoned but they didn't do it. Instead, they brought her to Jesus because they thought we finally got this guy. Uh, They said in in the verse there, they said, this woman has been caught committing adultery in the very act. And in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Well, earlier in John in chapter three, verse 17, It says, for God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Well, Jesus, if you're the Savior of the world, what are you going to do here? Are you going to save this woman, or are you going to set her free? Are you going to condemn her, or are you really the Savior of the world? You see, they really this was a serious situation, and they were ready to throw stones at her. If he had said, yeah, go ahead and stone her, then how could he really be the savior of the world? But on the other hand, if he said, no, 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 don't, don't stone her, uh, you know, God is love and we need to uh, just uh, forget about this sin and, and so forth, don't stone her, then, uh, then they could accuse him of breaking the law of Moses, Right? And so they had him trapped. They had him trapped. This was a very serious situation. And they thought they were pretty smart, but actually they were, they were pretty stupid. They didn't realize who they were dealing with here, right? Uh, <clears throat> but what did the Lord do? When they began to uh, kind of attack him in this way, what did the Lord do? He simply stooped down on the ground. And began to write on the ground. He didn't say a word. He just stooped down and began to write on the ground. There's no record of what he wrote. We don't know. Some people speculate, but nobody knows what he wrote. Uh, And, uh, you know, we just need to realize that these guys were standing there with, probably had their stones in their hands. They were probably tossing their stones up in the air, just waiting. What do you say, Jesus? What do you say? They were hot. They were boiling. They were ready to stone this woman. In fact, they were ready to kill Jesus. And Jesus, by stooping down on the ground and riding on the ground, he calmed the whole situation down. He cooled it down. He cooled it down. And, uh, you know, this this should really be a lesson for us. Because as those who follow the Lord, uh, don't be surprised if on some occasions you'll be confronted with very similar situations like this. Okay, where you will be tempted to say yes or no, right or wrong. But you have to realize that these kinds of questionings They are all wrapped up with and all twisted up with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you say yes, you're in trouble. And if you say no, you're in trouble. You see? So, but that's what they want you to do. They want you to say yes or no. They want you to say right or wrong. Uh, Because then they've got you. They've got you trapped. Um. they say, oh, you say you're a Christian? What do you think about this, uh, this thing, this issue going out there in society? Yes or no? What do you say about this political issue, right or wrong? And the moment you say something, uh, they've got you trapped. Sometimes it's better to say nothing at all, right? And this uh, kind of situation comes up repeatedly in the Bible. Even tomorrow morning, you'll see the case of the blind man and the disciples of Jesus. They asked the Lord, they said, who sinned that this man would be born blind? Was it him or was it his parents? Yes or no? You know what the Lord's response was? He said, neither. (laughs) Neither has this man sinned nor his parents. But he was born such that that the works of God might be manifested. I was thinking of another case in the Old Testament, in Joshua chapter 5. Joshua was there, it says in verse 13, uh, he was by Jericho. He lifted up his eyes and he looked, and behold, there was a man standing opposite him, and his sword was drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? He was ready to take him out if he was one with the enemy. But the response that came back was neither, but as the captain of Jehovah's army have I now come. I'm not for you and I'm not for your enemies. I'm for God. Praise the Lord. So, this is a very good lesson for us to learn uh, not to get wrapped up and entangled with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, entangled with all the reasonings in the mind. But we need to turn to Christ, who is the reality of the tree of life. We we want to uh, realize that there's another choice out there. There's not just good and evil. Good and evil are on the same tree. There's another tree, the tree of life, and that's Christ himself. The very person who's present with us, who's available, who desires that we would consult with him and be one with him and express him. Amen. Now, in Roman numeral 1, it says the complete and thorough exposure of sin in John 8. It's constituting all men, its main categories, its source, its bondage, and its result. Wow. What a a chapter. The first thing we want to see is that there is no man without sin, but all of us ...have been constituted with the sin nature. That is the satanic nature. I put uh, verse 7 here. It says, but when they persisted in questioning him... ...he stood up and said to them... ...he who is without sin among you... ...let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And of course we know what happened. We read the story one by one... ...starting with the older ones... ...they began to leave. And eventually there was no one left, right? They all left, except Jesus, of course. But the point is that there's no man without sin. And I put this verse from Romans 5. It says, for just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were constituted sinners. Brothers and sisters, it's part of our very constitution. And as it says here in 1 Kings, and there's a lot of other verses in the Bible that say the same thing, there is no man who does not sin. So that's the first point we want to see here in John 8, is the fact that sin constitutes all men. Then we see the categories and the source of sin here in John 8. In verse 3, you can circle the word adultery. And in verse 41, the word fornication. This composes one category of sin, that is Uh, immorality adultery and fornication and then in verse 44 there's two more categories there's murder and lies deceit it says here that the devil was a murderer from the beginning that's just part of his nature and his satanic sinful nature has gotten into us and then it says there's no truth in him but he's a liar He's a liar. He's the source of these three categories of sin. You know, murder includes anger. When you get angry with someone, in the uh, in the so-called Sermon on the Mount, the Lord said, "You you've murdered him in your heart." Actually, anger and murder were the first manifestation of the sin nature that got into man way back in Genesis chapter three. The serpent deceived Eve. They partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which signified Satan and his evil source and nature that got inside of them. And in the very next chapter, when Cain, the son of Adam, offered a sacrifice to God, God rejected his offering. And it says that Cain got very angry. And then he murdered his brother Abel. So this was the first manifestation of the sin nature fornication and adultery actually mean confusion confusion it means to violate the governing and controlling principle of God that there should be one husband with one wife so fornication brings in confusion in order and brothers and sisters uh I'm just very burdened about this point that we have to realize that we have a body of flesh of sin. And we have to have a healthy fear of our flesh. And we have to be on guard not to give any opportunity for the flesh. This is uh, Romans thirteen fourteen. It says, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. We have to have a healthy fear, brothers and sisters of the flesh of sin we all have it we're all constituted with the sinful nature it constitutes us and it it's not getting any better it probably only gets worse it does not improve so we should have no trust in the flesh you know back uh, back when i was a college student Um, There were two famous TV evangelists who fell into adultery and their ministry was ruined. And then a little bit later, in 1990, Time Magazine interviewed Billy Graham. And they asked him this question. They said, how have you been able to preserve yourself and not fall in the same way that these others have? I don't know. There might be some in the audience who don't even know who Billy Graham is, but he was probably the most prevailing evangelist in the United States in the last half century, starting right around the time of World War II, all the way up until his death uh, not too long ago, maybe within the last 10 years or so. I can't remember when he passed away. And millions of people got saved through his evangelism on the whole earth. And they asked him, how have you been able to preserve yourself from falling like these other ones have, falling into adultery? And you know what he said? He said, I learned this from a very elderly clergyman many years ago when I was very young. He said, I never spend time alone with a woman who is not my wife. He said, I never take my secretary out to lunch by herself. He said, if I ever have to dictate a memo or something to my secretary and she has to come into my office, the door is wide open. He would never be alone with another woman that was not his wife. And and brothers and sisters, when I was your age, uh, this message got burned into my being. It really did. And I'll never forget this one incident when uh, I was newly married and uh, I was actually attending a, a college meeting and there were some visitors from out of town. A couple of sisters came from out of town and the service office of the church arranged for me to give a ride to these two sisters to take them to their hospitality after the after the meeting was over. And that arrangement was made maybe a, a day or two before the, uh, before the event. And within me, there was just a strong feeling uh, about this matter, that I would not be alone as a newly married young man with these two single sisters driving them to their hospitality. And so uh, <laughs> that feeling was in me. Um, and I went to an older brother and I just opened up and I said, you know, the service office arranged for me to do this, but I just don't, uh, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm a little uneasy. What do you, what do you think? And, uh, the brother prayed with me. We prayed together. He, and then he asked me, he said, how do you feel? And I said, well, I'm, I'm a little uneasy about it. And, um, but I don't know what to do. I mean, the service office arranged it and I don't think they have another ride um, and then he asked me, he said, what does your wife think about it? And I said, well, my wife doesn't even know about it. Um, and, uh, and anyways, in the end, I, uh, when I left the room with that brother, he didn't tell me to do this or not to do this. We just prayed together. But when I left, I was very clear that I needed to make a phone call to the service office and let them know they need to find another ride. For this sister, these two sisters, and uh, and you might you might think, oh gosh, that's that's really old fashioned, brother Paul. No, brothers and sisters, it's not old fashioned. Um, it's just as fresh and relevant today as it was thirty years ago. I just found out about a month ago a famous Christian apologetics person who had been serving in a ministry for decades and thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people appreciated his ministry. And he died last year. And then some allegations came out of what his life was really like behind the scenes. And, uh, It came out that he had actually been involved in a lot of sexual misconduct, adultery, and so forth. And now his ministry is ruined, and thousands of Christians on this earth are stumbled because of it. This word is just as relevant and fresh today as it was 30 years ago, as it was 100 years ago, because the flesh doesn't change. The flesh is constituted with the sin nature. It will never improve, and we must have a healthy fear of our flesh. A healthy fear. Don't think within yourself, well, I'm a strong Christian. I have morning revival every day. I read the Bible. I touch the Lord. I love to sing to the Lord. I exercise my spirit. No, if you make provision for the flesh there's a very good chance that the law of, this, of sin, the law of sin, it's, it's a powerful law. It will overcome you and it will take you down. So I just was burdened to share this word uh, on this matter of, of sin in our flesh. Now, just moving on quickly, uh, we need to see that in John chapter 8... Not only is there the categories of sin, but also the source of sin is seen here in this verse 44. It says, you are of your father, the devil. Father implies source, the originator. The source of sin is the devil. He's the source of confusion and darkness. He's the source of murder. He's the source of lies and deceit. in revelation 20:22 20, or sorry 20 verse 2 it refers to the devil as the ancient serpent who is the devil and satan he is the ancient serpent and then in matthew 23, 33, the lord calls the religious jews there he says you serpents brood of vipers how shall you escape the judgment of gehenna so satan is the the ancient serpent and we are the children of this serpent we are serpents we are a brood of vipers we've been snake bitten we have the poisonous nature of this of satan himself so he's our father we're his children from our birth and lineage in adam now moving on to verse 34 It shows that sin brings in a bondage and a slavery. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. You know, sin operates within us as a law, just like the law of gravity. It's always operating 24-7 to bring you down. And it is powerful. It's much more powerful than the law of good in your mind. You might make up your mind to do good. I want to do good. I want to follow the law of God. But there's a stronger law in your flesh called the law of sin and death. And that is far more powerful. And it has enslaved man. We are in bondage to sin because of this law. And the issue is death. The issue is death. That's seen in verse 24. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. You will die in your sins. The issue of sin is just death. Now, let's move on to Roman numeral two. It says religion with its law is powerless to help those under the bondage of sin. In these three verses, verse two, three, and five. We have a summary of religion. Okay? It says in verse 2, he came into the temple. Circle the word temple on your outline. In verse 3, you have the scribes and the Pharisees. You know, the temple was the place for them to carry out their religion and worship God. The scribes and the Pharisees were the teachers of that religion. And then in verse 5, you have the law. And Moses. Okay, this is the the book of that religion, <laughs> the law, the code of ethics and morality. And then you have stone such women. This is a summary of religion: the temple, the scribes, the Pharisees, the law, Moses, stone that woman. In Second uh, Corinthians three six on your outline. It says the letter kills. In Romans 8 3, it says the law could not do. It was weak. Brothers and sisters, this is the summary of religion with its law. It is powerless to do anything to help us get free from the bondage of sin. It has the temple, it has the scribes, it has the Pharisees, it has the law, it has Moses. It's, it kills, it could not do, it was weak. And the reason that it is powerless is seen in Galatians 3.21, where it says, For if a law had been given, which was able to give life, righteousness would have indeed been of law. Well, brothers and sisters, our problem is death. Sin is. Issues in weakness. And the ultimate issue of weakness is just death. But what we need is the spirit. Because the spirit gives life. Praise the Lord. The spirit gives life. Amen. You know for sake of time. I'm going to move on a little further here. To Roman numeral three. So we've seen. A complete and thorough exposure of sin, its ubiquity, its source, its categories, its its bondage, and its result, which is death. We've also seen that religion is powerless to help set us free from the bondage of sin. But now we come to a marvelous Roman numeral three. I hope we could all read it together where we're sitting in in our groups Jesus Christ being powerful to set people free from the bondage of sin. Praise the Lord. You know, religion, it might be good, but it can't give you life. It can't give you life. We are dead, and that's what we need is life. Back in John 5, there was this impotent man there who who had no ability to do anything to help himself, and religion could not help him. And the Lord said, he said, the day is coming, the hour is coming, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. We need a living person to come and impart life into us, because we are actually dead. Without Christ, people are actually dead. Um, The first... Thing that we want to oh, see in the matter, of Jesus yes. Christ being yes. powerful and yes. to yes. set us free I'm is that yes. He is the ever-existing God, the great I Am. And so, of course, in John chapter 8, three times the Lord refers to himself as I am. But I want to give a little background on this title of God. In uh, Exodus 3:14, which is also on your page, it says, uh, well, just a little background. So Moses was there in the wilderness tending sheep for forty years, and suddenly God appears to him in a burning bush, and God uh, wants to send him back to Egypt to rescue his people out of the slavery in Egypt. And Moses says to God, he says, "Well, when I if I go back and tell them that God sent me here to save you, they're going to ask me what's the name of this God." That's sending you. And here here was God's response. He said I am who I am. And he said thus shall you say to the children of Israel. I am has sent me to you. So this is the divine title of God. I am with no qualifiers. I am whatever you need. I am. He is the self existing. The ever existing eternal god and he is whatever we need now in uh i i know that in some of these verses in john 8 in verse 24 and in 28 in some versions of the bible when they translate this from the greek into the english they add a word they say i am he when they translate it. Now, if it's a word for word direct translation, usually the translators will put any supplied words in italics to let the readers know that that word was not in the original Greek, but they're adding it in to make the sentence more smooth, to uh, make it more understandable and so forth. And so they might put the word he there. I am he, I am he. But that's not what the Greek says. The Greek says, I am. And uh, even in the King James Version, in verse 58, which is on your page, the Lord said, before Abraham came into being, I am. And the King James Version does not put the word he there in italics, and it makes it all caps, I am. Now you might... Try to reason your way around this. Try to argue and say, well, Jesus really wasn't trying to imply that he was the eternal almighty God uh, that was there back in Exodus chapter 3. But the Jews knew exactly what he was saying. Because in the very next phrase, it says they picked up stones to throw at him. Because according to their view, he was saying, I am. I am. That I am God. And to them, that was heretical. And they wanted to stone him. So they knew exactly what he was saying. Jesus Christ is God. He is the ever-existing, self-existing, eternal, almighty God, the great I am. And this great I am, he became the son of man. The only man without sin And was lifted up on the cross to bear our sins. In verse uh, 9, it says that Jesus was left alone. As the other uh, older ones and the younger ones who had the stones ready to throw, they left. Eventually, Jesus was left alone. That proves that he was the only man without sin. And this matter of him becoming the son of man is very precious. You see in verse 28 there, it says, Jesus therefore said to them, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am and that I do nothing from myself. But as the father has taught me, I speak these things. Well, the fact that he became the son of man implies a humbling. It implies a Uh, a lowering of himself because he is god he's equal to god the father the son and the spirit the three of the godhead uh, are equal they're all eternal they coexist they co-inhere they mutually indwell one another jesus christ is god but he the second of the divine trinity humbled himself And submitted himself to the first of the divine trinity, to the Father. So this implies a humbling. And in so doing, in so doing, he could be touched with the feeling of our weaknesses. That's why I put Hebrews 3 uh, 4:15 here. It says, We do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our weaknesses. That's a double negative, right? We do have a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our weaknesses and one who has been tempted in all respects like us, yet without sin. Praise the Lord. This is so touching that he can actually sympathize with us. He can be touched with the feeling of our weaknesses because he, as the great I am, became the son of man. Became the son of man. And he can be touched. With the feeling of our weaknesses. Then. He said he was lifted up. He was lifted up. Uh, And I want to. Give a little background on this matter of being lifted up. Because often we think of. When we think of redemption. We think of Christ as the lamb of God. Who shed his blood. For the forgiveness of our sins. But repeatedly in the Gospel of John, the Lord says that he was lifted up. If I be lifted up. So we have to see that for redemption, the Lord had to be the Lamb of God. But for dealing with the serpentine nature, the sin nature, the satanic nature, uh, he had to be lifted up in the form of a serpent. And he did this, brothers and sisters, as the son of man. Now, <clears throat> what I'm about to tell you will make the evil spirits and the demons shudder. The devil hates this word. In 1 John 4, it tells us that the evil spirits will not confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. They will not confess that Jesus Christ As the son of man has come in incarnation That he came in the flesh That he is the great I am Incarnated Come in the flesh To be the son of man Satan hates this The demons, the evil spirits Will not confess this But the Lord said in John 3.14 And the verse is there on your page And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Could you believe that the Lord would liken himself to a serpent? But you need to understand the background here. This is coming from the book of Numbers, chapter 21. And Moses had led the people out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And the people of Israel were murmuring and complaining against God and against Moses. And so God sent fiery serpents, poisonous snakes into the camp. And they started biting the people and they were dying. And so they cried out to to Moses and Moses cried out to God. And God said, okay, make a serpent out of bronze and lift it up on a pole. And whoever looks at that serpent, that bronze serpent, will live Now that bronze serpent it had the form of the serpent but it did not have the poisonous nature of the serpent In the same way Jesus Christ he came as a son of man yet without sin He became in a form just like you and me He could be tempted in all respects just like you and me but he did not have the poisonous sin nature and so when he died on the cross, he was lifted up as the reality of that bronze serpent. And now whoever looks, whoever believes in this one shall live. Praise the Lord. In John 12, 31 and 32, it says, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. And then I, if I be lifted up from the earth will draw all men to myself so christ being lifted up is totally associated with the casting out of that old serpent and by him being lifted up on the cross satan got exposed he got judged he got cast out the source of sin which is dwelling in us as a law praise the lord it got dealt with praise the lord now, just very quickly, I just have a few minutes left. <clears throat> In John 8, uh, 10 through 11, we see that Jesus was, he was qualified to condemn sinners, but he would not do it. He would not condemn sinners. Because he came as the son, uh, as the son into the world, not to condemn, but to, to save, praise the Lord. And he was also qualified to forgive man's sins. That's why I love verse uh, Matthew 9, 6. He has the authority as the son of man. He has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Um, We need to realize, brothers and sisters, that this great I am who became the son of man, the only man without sin and was lifted up. On the cross to bear our sins He can set people free from sin He can save us from the bondage of sin And also from the result of sin The last point uh, Just skipping down later on the outline Is uh, <clears throat> Starting with verse John 8-12 We see the way That he sets us free from sin and this way brothers and sisters is by the light of life and by the sun as the reality in john 8:12 it says again therefore jesus spoke to them saying i am the light of the world he who follows me shall by no means walk in darkness but shall have the light of life you know to walk in darkness is just to walk in sin darkness is a it's a byproduct of sin But this verse says that he is the light of the world. And that if we follow him, we will have the light of life. Well, praise the Lord. We received his life, right? We got regenerated. But that life shines. Praise the Lord. There's the light of that life. It shines. It comes in and shines. And did you know that light uh, has a killing function? Even... In the biology, they use UV light to kill bacteria in drinking water. But but praise the Lord, this light shines within us and it kills the negative effects of the sin nature within us. Praise the Lord. And then also, the Lord himself as the reality. You know, the, the Lord said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Well, that word truth is not doctrine. That word is reality. And that reality is a person. In verse 36, he says, the son shall set you free. He is the reality. As we touch the Lord and enjoy him in our daily life, calling on his name, praying his word, singing to the Lord, however we do it, we are getting an accumulation of the very element of Christ as reality in our being. It's accumulating. And as that element is accumulating in our being, the very effects of the sin nature are decreasing. Praise the Lord. It seems like the more uh, people in the world lose their temper, the more temper they have to lose. But if we are enjoying Christ as the reality, the more we lose our temper, the less temper we have to lose. This is a fact. You just test your experience as you go on with the Lord day by day, week by week, year by year, and join him, and his element is accumulating in your being. Oh, praise the Lord. We're getting set free. <clears throat> now, the last thing that I wanted to say is in Genesis fourteen fourteen, And when Abram heard that his brother had been taken captive, he led out his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and pursued as far as Dan. You know, um, with Christ, we have kind of a dual function. We have the light to come in and shine and eliminate the negative uh, elements. And we also have uh, a positive nourishing supply But thirdly, brothers and sisters, I just wanted you to make this point in your notes that we have one another. We have the body of Christ. We have the brothers and the sisters that we're connected to, to pray for us. And this is a big deal. This is a big deal. Just like Abraham, he took his trained men and he went after his relative who got captured. You know, we're so prone to get captured by sin. But praise the Lord, we have the other members that we can pray with. And and together, brothers and sisters, we can make it. We have the Lord and we have the, uh, the, the brothers and sisters. Thank you, Lord. <clears throat> Thank you for your way of setting us free from the bondage of sin. Amen.